Welcome to the Outspoken Podcast. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. On this podcast, we are going to go deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. So I said, could I work for you at night? And so not to take away from building the business, one night a week I wouldn't sleep. And I stayed up all night and listened to the tapes and wrote analysis. And another fun client you had was Spirit Airlines? Yes, Spirit Airlines. Um, the slogan was party in the uh, business in the, the front, front, party in, in the, the back. back. <laughs> the guy with the mullet. <laughs> what were some of the other cheeky lines? I remember when I met you, it was really cheeky. It was something uh, yes. about like um, flying naked or no, no. Well, we did have a flight naked one, but um, <laughs> I'm not sure this is for the podcast. We did several, one for Spirit actually, and one for um, Teltex, three-story high billboards in Times Square. And going to see those was exciting. And then going into a Kohan store, when we'd go in there and we would see everything we did down to making, doing the design on the shoe boxes, and they would have our catalogs and our ads in the store. And, you know, I would walk in and I would, in some ways, I'd pinch myself and I'd say, do we really do this? Anita Kaplan was founder, president, and CEO of Sequis, a Baltimore-based advertising and design firm founded in 1986. And in this episode of the Outspoken Podcast, we explore the evolution of Anita Kaplan from a young college graduate and bride, both at 19 years old, to a professional potter, to a single mother starting her own business in her own way, and a very successful one to boot. In the world of advertising, Sequist could best be defined as an integrated marketing and creative agency. Some of Sequist's clients were Woolrich, Cole Hahn, Alfred Angelo Bridles, Wrangler, Champion, Strayer University, Spirit Airlines, and Lacrosse Company STX. Sequist won numerous local and regional Addy Awards, including Best in Show. Some of their more notable work was featured on national television. A Sequest ad for Spirit Airlines was a subject of a segment on The O'Reilly Factor. An ad for Little Me was a subject of a segment on The Oprah Winfrey Show. And very innovative and unique outdoor advertising campaign in Manhattan for Little Me was a subject of an international segment on CNN. Sequest was started over 35 years ago when both technology and social norms were quite different. We will examine the challenges Anita faced at that time in contrast to those young business owners face today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I have the pleasure of knowing Anita for almost 11 years now. She is the long-term significant other. We always debate the proper term of my father. (laughs) I actually knew Anita before I started my business, Nyla, and it was great to have her experience and her history with telling me kind of where to get going. And I don't know if I've ever told you this, Anita, but I remember calling you crying in the beginning of Nyla when it was so hard and I just thought people were going to hand me work. And you were like, nobody owes you anything, Shayna. <laughs> it's doggy dog out there and it's competition and you have to be clear about why you're different. So nobody's just going to hand you anything because you walked in the door. And I actually found that very comforting. <laughs> it was, uh, I had, I had actually just assumed I would just get work like handed to me. And so I've always really appreciated your guidance and you've had quite the lively life and uh, <laughs> career. So tell us a little bit about first where you are today and what your life is like now. Okay. Well, I am 
like everyone else, a victim of coronavirus <laughs> um, in the sense that life isn't what it was before. But I'm retired, and actually happily so, which surprises me every day. And I live in Baltimore with my significant other. And um, before coronavirus, loved to travel, entertain, and do many things, um, go to theater, go to movies, and things like that. I do love to read as well. Uh, yeah, this, uh, this lack of social connection has been hard for you, huh? Very hard. Yeah. Let's go back all the way to the beginning. Tell us about your childhood. What did your parents do for a living? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Okay. Well, I grew up in Baltimore as a very spoiled only child. I don't mean spoiled in a financial sense, but spoiled in that I was, I would say very much loved and cared for in in all the best ways. My father was a cost accountant for the U.S. Postal Service and my mother was a special education teacher. They both greatly valued education, and um, it was very important to them that I also, you know, be well-educated, and I was always very motivated to do well in school. Did you grow up in Baltimore City or I in the county? I grew up in Baltimore City, in northwest Baltimore City. And your mom worked your whole childhood as well? Well, when I was young, she would do substitute teaching, And then when I went to junior high, she took a full-time position um, at a school in East Baltimore teaching special ed, and she taught there for 25 years. Now, you have an interesting story about your high school, right? Tell us about your high school experience and graduating. Well, first of all, I, I was very good in school. So when I went to junior high school, I was put into an accelerated program instead of three years to do the work that there was two. So I graduated high school before my 17th, before my 16th birthday, actually. That's crazy. So you yes. were 15 years old. No, no, I'm sorry. I mixed up before my seven. I was 16 before my 17th birthday. 16. Do you know how to drive a car? I learned how to drive a car my senior year of high school. <laughs> um, and then you go off to college. Where did you go to college? I went to University of Maryland. And, um, in I was College Park, did in, you live there? In College Park, and I lived there. And then um, people who know me will know that this is true. I hate to read directions. And so when I registered for college, it said to choose one, but I didn't bother to read the directions, so I took all the courses in the list. And so by the end of the first semester, I had completed the first year. So, How many credits was that, Anita? It was like 24. <laughs> <laughs> did it didn't other people ask you why you were in class so much or like yes, what was they your did, but um remember I went to school in 1961 and everyone I knew was studying education or nursing and I was a psychology major so oh. I just assumed that what I was doing was different than everyone else I knew when you were growing up as a child or and when you went to college what did you think you were gonna study and do with your life all right this is not, you're not, I wanted to be a stay at home mom. (laughs) (laughs) Were you, did you not like that your mother worked? Was that? No, I, I, it's not, not that I love that she worked and I love that she was a teacher, but I just thought that the best thing would be to have lots of kids and stay home and take care of them. How many kids did you want? Oh, five, six. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Until I had children. So you went off to be, were you going to, did you think you were going to get like a PhD or you were just well, going to college to get married? What okay. was your... 
Okay, remember, this is 19, in the 1960s. So when at the end of this first semester, when I had taken all these courses, my advisor said he thought it would be very easy for me to graduate in six semesters. And at the time, I had a serious boyfriend who I did eventually marry, who was a year ahead of me in school. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be great? We could graduate at the same time and get married. So I finished college in six semesters. And I did, before my 20th birthday, get married and graduate from college. So did you get married on campus? What was your wedding No, I got, like? I got married um, in Baltimore. And it was a sort of traditional wedding with a white dress and, you know, room and tuxedo and dinner and that type of thing. So you were 19 years old and he was and, 21? Yes. I was almost... I, would, I was 20 the next month, one month before my 20th birthday. Now, could you imagine today if your daughters had gotten married at 19? Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority. With generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. It would be astonishing. <laughs> and this is, this is at that point in time, how sort of different my mental set was. Even then, I remember one of my teachers called me into her office. She was a PhD in psychology, in fact, child psychology. And she said, Anita, I'd like to know what your plans are for the future after you graduate. And I said, oh, she knew Michael because he was also a psychology major. Major, I got a BA, he got a BS. I said, oh, um, I'm going to marry Michael and we're going to move to Michigan and he's going to go to veterinary school. And I said, and she said to me, no, no, I want to know what your career plans are. And I said, oh, I'll get a job. <laughs> so I really didn't, I even at that point did not have career aspirations. Did you, um, was he on board with this whole uh, like marriage wedding plan? Like Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, in fact, he, in September of that, of, the, of my senior year, right at the beginning, he proposed and gave me an engagement ring and I was absolutely shocked. You were shocked? We had talked about getting married, but we had not talked about like we would get engaged and I was like astonished when he formally proposed and gave me an engagement ring. And he was your boyfriend in high school too, right? Yes, he was. So this was your, you went, you married the first, your uh, first boyfriend. He wasn't my only, but he was one of my first. Yes. Okay. So you do end up marrying him. I married him. And moving to Michigan. And that's when everything, sort of my thoughts about the future really began to change. Um, I arrived in East Lansing, Michigan with a bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in sociology and art history. In East Lansing, Michigan, that had absolutely no value. There weren't any jobs that I was qualified to do. And the first job I got while I was in Michigan was 
adding, now this is the 60s, remember, manually adding up grade point averages on applications to Michigan State University. That doesn't surprise me because the women were the first computers. Well, I guess because I, you know, and after a couple of I can't imagine months, you doing that job. I wanted to blow my brains out. So I <laughs> got another job. Well, immediately I knew I needed more education. So I went to Michigan State and I, I actually spoke to them and I said, look, you know, I, I want to have a real job. And they said, your best opportunity would be to get a master's degree in education and a teaching job because based on the jobs available in this area, this is your best opportunity. So I had already started graduate school at night. So at that point, I was adding up grade point averages, going to graduate school, and then we I didn't make any money, so I was selling Avon cosmetics door-to-door at night as well. It was very busy. <laughs> Did you wear the product too? Oh, you know, to this day, I can't stand this, uh, the aroma of any of their products because it, <laughs> I lived in this tiny apartment and it just smelled like Avon Cosmetics. Were you living off of your income, the two we of you? We were living off of my income. And he took loans to go to veterinary no, school? No, his parents paid his tuition. Okay. But I supported us. But no food that. for you two. <laughs> there, no. <laughs> we would budget for food, but uh-huh. so then I thought I, I could get a better job. So I got a job as a customer service representative for Michigan Bell Telephone. Uh huh. How'd that go? That, that was also <laughs> that was horrible. That was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Did you yell at any customers, Anita? No, the customers <laughs> were fine. It was it was this, the culture. I used to carpool because we had one carpool with some other people who worked in a different office and they had to be at work earlier. So I would get there earlier, but I wasn't allowed to go to my desk and work because then it would appear I was a better employee than someone who arrived on time. Crazy. That so were you like smoking cigarettes out back? What would you, you do? I, you just sat in, yeah, probably people were smoking. You sat in what they call the lounge and you waited until they rang a bell. I should have known that that was Corporate America was never going to be for me, but I lasted till the end of June in that job. Then as part of my program, I had to, to student teach and they were very kind to let me student teach in summer school. And then the following year, I started teaching in a small town that I always just called Hazlitt that I always described as East of East Lansing. And I loved it. It was wonderful. I really loved the children. I loved what the job. What grade did you teach? Excuse me, I taught third grade and I taught Head Start in the summer. Okay. And what were you getting your master's in? Education, childhood no, education. When did your pottery master's come into that play? That was later. That's later. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gotten there I don't yet. think I knew that you had two master's degrees. Yes. You have, no, you have yeah, two master's degrees. Right. I always describe you, Anita, as like uh, Mary Poppins. Like, no, Mary Poppins. I don't, know, I don't know what's going to come out of your, your bag next. <laughs> so, you have so many <laughs> stories. I mean, we might as well interject right now and tell the story about how you invented cookies and cream ice cream. I did. <laughs> I did invent cookies and cream ice cream. That was later too. But I will tell you that you know, my, daughter, my older daughter went to camp with mm-hmm. these people who owned Lee's ice cream. And we were going to visit the kids. And on the way up, they said, we're looking for some new flavors. Let's brainstorm about some ideas. And I said, well, people eat cookies with ice cream. So why don't you try mixing the cookies in the ice cream? Like we, you could do Oreos, you could do chocolate chips, you could do 
chocolate wafers. You could do vanilla cookies. And they did them all. And the one that really stuck was the cook was, well, it was Oreo cookies. They called it Oreo ice cream to Oreo would not, not let them use their brand name. In fact, they were making such a small amount of ice cream at the time. They used to go to the giant and buy boxes of Oreo cookies. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a real custom shop. Right. right. Well, he was, he was a podiatrist. This was just a fun job, a fun thing. They had this ice cream shop. This is like being the uh, lady who created the Nike swoosh. So you created one of the most famous ice cream places of all time. Right. No No credit uh, for it whatsoever. I didn't even think I had free ice cream. No royalties for you. (laughs) No royalties for me. So going back, you are a teacher. Right. And I taught school for three years while my ex-husband finished veterinary school. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to Washington, D.C., where he took a job. And I was eight months pregnant at the time. So I did not go back to teaching. Also, I I had a Michigan teaching certificate, but I didn't have a Maryland one. I had to apply for that. And so I did not apply for it in the end. I just substitute, I did substitute teaching and tutoring while my first daughter, Kelly, was a baby. And then when she was one year old, I was also helping him to open an animal hospital with another veterinarian. And I was doing things to help them do that. When she was one, we moved from Washington to Baltimore and they opened the animal hospital. Did you guys always expect that you would help him with the business or oh, was absolutely. it? I was always very interested in the business side of opening an animal hospital. Cause I, by then I had all, I guess I had gotten the entrepreneurial spirit and I was like, no, you know, what you really have to do, you have to open your own hospital. That's the only way to go. Open your own hospital. Now, so, have you always <laughs> been so opinionated? And um, yes. were you like more demure then? No, or? I was never demure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I was ever demure. Okay. So Michael wasn't shocked by you having an opinion about no, how to No, no, not at all. Not at all. And also too, we had been in school together and we had competed for grades in classes. So we'd study together and then we'd compete for the highest grade or who was going to set the curve. People did not like us. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so then I've always been interested in politics and always had, once again, very strong political views. And I became, at that point, involved in a group called the New Democratic Coalition. And so this was not a paid position, but I was doing this full time. And you have one baby at this time. I have one child, right. One baby, okay. Right, and I'm very active campaigning for candidates that I really feel are the right candidates. I was very anti-war. This was the six, this was the, this is the late sixties moving into the seventies. So are you wearing Kelly and like knocking on doors? What what was your... Yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) I have not seen pictures from this time. I know, yes, yes. I'm very much the political activist. And then I became pregnant with my second child, Jamie. And while I was pregnant with Jamie, a friend invited me to go with her to a pottery class. I went to a pottery class and I fell in love. I literally fell in love. I put my hands in that clay and I said... This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So I had to learn how to do it. So I first um, went to some classes at a recreation center. And I didn't, then I went to classes at the Maryland Institute. And then Antioch College at that point had an extension program in Columbia. And they had uh, in a lot of different areas. Well, one of them was pottery. So I went there 
and I did get a master's degree in ceramics and I became a professional potter. Now, who watched your child while you took these classes? I was very lucky. My parents. Okay. And by, and by th- th- this time, my mother had retired. Okay. So my, par- my parents had both retired, actually. So I was very lucky that my parents were there to help out and they were ha- happy to help out. Now, and when I was getting this master's degree, it was not like, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week, because that's not how a master's program works. And it took me a while. It pro- took me probably three years at least. So did you end up having a thriving pottery business? Tell us a little bit about I that. I wouldn't evolution. call it thriving. I think there are two types of potters. The one potter who struggles along, and I, I did you know, the ACC show, Winter Market, and I did great craft shows, and I sold my work in nice stores, but I was not famous. If you're famous, it's like a painter. If you're famous, you're a famous painter, you're a star. And if you're not, then you're not going to be a great financial success. And that was fine. I I mean, I was really fine with that. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I had a wonderful network of friends who were also potters. We worked independently. We worked collectively. I took classes with a lot of famous potters. So it was, it was a great period in my life in terms of personal development. And I've always been the type of person who loves to do things with my hands and likes to think creatively. So it was, it was a, a very creative period in my life. Were you artistic growing up in high school and everything? Like, do you have a whole series of painting and art from that time? I never painted. I never painted. I was always more interested in three-dimensional kinds of things, So, which is why I fell in love with, with pottery. Okay. And so what happens between you have two young girls? Right. Well, they're getting older. They're like, let's say they're in high... Well, no, they're in... Just finishing up elementary school. So they're finishing up... So you have two young girls. You're a professional potter. Your husband has a veterinary practice that's doing well. And how involved at that point are you in the practice? Not particularly at all. I was so you're really not writing the books? No, nothing, nothing. I you're was not really doing this marketing? Help. No, 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 nothing. I, wasn't, I, had, I was not a person who had knowledge about marketing per se at that point. I, was, I helped him to pick a location make the, get the permits. In other words, was, uh, he opened in a shopping center. They were the first hospital in the United States to open in a shopping center to try to get the zoning right, to get the permits right, to do all the things to help him on a business side of view, but not marketing side of view, point of view to open the hospital. He had okay. a partner too. And, you know, we worked, all worked as a team. Did you have dinner ready for him every night when he came home? Absolutely. You did? <laughs> I did. I did. And with a clean outfit? <laughs> like clean outfit? No, no, it wasn't that. He actually used to come home and go back to work. Oh, really? Yes. So How late would, did he have to work? Well, he would go to work like late and then come home for dinner early and then go back to work until like eight or nine o'clock because people came, came in the evening. So yeah. it was very odd hours and he had a day off during the week, but he worked on Saturday but it was fine. It was, you know, it was not ridiculous. You know, it's not like he was gone and at the hospital all the time. So you did everything. You cleaned the house. You had the dinner well, ready. I, I mean, I had someone help me clean the house. Okay. I, I was, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't like the poor suffering housewife. Trust okay. me at that point. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, and I was busy making pots. I mean, and that took time too. So I was, you know, I, I was very, I was very satisfied 
professionally. And I thought I would be happy with that forever. Yeah, I would imagine selling pots in that time is quite actually difficult because you need the storage and then you're lugging them around to shows yeah, and right. you have to do such care to practice it, right? And like almost like you need a van. Well, I didn't have any- a van. I didn't believe in station wagons or SUVs or vans, <laughs> but my best friend had a, a station wagon. So whenever I wanted her station wagon, I gave her a pot and she gave me the station wagon. <laughs> How many pots did she get over time? She got a lot of pots. <laughs> nice, nice. So tell us about the evolution to where... Okay. Um, So in 1980, Michael and I separated. And at that point, I really had to make a decision where I wanted my life to go. Um, And I actually did consider, as one of the options, moving to a commune and making pots. But there were... In the U.S.? What? In the the United States? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there was one right near where I lived. Oh, really? In Maryland? Yeah. yeah, Right on... on, um, It's now a bed and breakfast, but it was right on on Greenspring Valley Road. Have you ever... Have you ever gone to one before you decided yeah, thought yeah. about oh, yeah. going to it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I was a sort of a latent hippie, too, at that point. Yeah. I was living in a house in the suburbs of, and considering myself a hippie with wild hair down to my shoulders, making pots and <laughs> hanging out with other hippie people <laughs> and having two children. It was a little, it was all a little schizophrenic, maybe. But anyway, um, but there were other issues, too, that I had to start to consider about making pots because it was just starting to become sort of more knowledgeable that I was working with toxic chemicals because the glazes are all made from toxic chemicals. And the clay itself, when it dries in part of the process, there's a process where you trim off excess clay, you get gray dust, which affects your lungs. Right. And then if you work with a gas fire kiln, these, this is way more in detail than you probably want. Anyway. No, I love, but, I love all the details. Uh, and I mean, you know, a lot of women today, I mean, that's a huge part of how mothers today are growing up is all these considerations of all these different toxins for their children and for themselves and their bodies. So right. I think it's very, you know, you might, you might have been ahead of your time, right? To recognize right. that your profession could possibly be killing you. you. <laughs> right. And looking at the flame in the kiln hurt your eyes. Anyway. So when I had to make a decision, I decided, no, that I was not going to continue to be a potter and that I needed to redirect myself and find another career. I had really seriously thought about going to law school, but I would have had to wait a year to do that. And I thought, well, in the meantime, I'm going to see if I would like business. So my way of finding out if I like something is generally to go to school. So, so I am, you got a third master's degree. I didn't, well, I didn't get a master's degree. I went to grad, I did a compressed MBA program at Goucher. Okay. In other words, it was compressed into one year. And basically it was really an opportunity. Well, it was by participating in that program. If you would like to be in the business world, if I didn't like to be in the business world, I was going to go to law school after that. And it was very interesting because there were things I liked about it and things that I didn't. And there was one of the things we did were informational interviews. So you'll know a lot about that. And I did an informational interview with someone who worked at a local radio station. And she was just, she looked at me and she said, you belong in advertising. I didn't even know. I didn't really even know what advertising was. I'm serious. I, she said, you belong in advertising. You would be so happy there. I'm going to introduce you to people. So I did, I, after the pro- program, I 
had met these people. And I was actually, while I was still in the program, doing some freelance work for the person who headed this marketing research department at WB Donor, who at that time was a large agency in Baltimore. They're now in Detroit. So he, I walked in to do an informational interview and he said, how would you like to do some marketing research? And so I did. And then after I graduated, I was hired by that agency. Wait, no, no, no. I thought this was the um, one you told them about their report with the customer survey. No, no, no. You're thinking, you're thinking of something else. Okay. That Tell was this story. When I'm, okay. This is a cool, this is okay. I'm working there as a freelancer and I'm invited to a party and the person I'm working for introduces me to the CEO. And I was very much in my, now I had moved very much into my feminist women's lib portion of my life. And so this gentleman says to me, what do you think of our agency? And I said to him, I think it's lovely, except there are no women in management. And he says, my secretary practically runs the agency. (laughs) And I said to him, is her salary commensurate with her position? In which case, my sort of mentor employer dragged me across the room, (laughs) not literally, but he was like, "Uh, we have someone over there we need to talk to. (laughs) So you were insulting the client? No, well, I was insulting my future, the future (laughs) CEO I was going to work under. And every time when I did get the job there, and he had nothing to do with hiring me, someone else hired me because it was a large agency. And he would see me in the halls, he would say, oh, there's the women's liver. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I always think, um, you know, I, my dad always wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, I think that's one of the things you two have in common is that the two of you would be would have been amazing uh, lawyers. And you're really quite good. Let's say I never want to be on the other side of you in court. Now, Thank you. <laughs> tell us a little bit, I think, from a women's history perspective, too, about one of the laws you challenged in your uh, separation well, from your first husband. Well, when my husband, my first husband and I separated... Um, we, it became not very amicable when we began to divide property. And so I hired an attorney, he hired an attorney. The attorney I hired was a woman named Ann Turnbull. And she had just, this is in like, well, we separated in 80. So this is like 80, late 81, 82. And she had helped to write a revised divorce law for the state of Maryland. And what the law basically stated was that all property acquired during the marriage was jointly owned, not like Pennsylvania, which is a community property state, which is 50-50, that it's jointly owned and the judge has decides how it's divided. So she, the law had never been tested in court and the way the legal system works for law to really have real validity, it has to be tested. So she agreed to take my case to test the law. And um, because I didn't have a lot of money, she said, I can tell you a way you can save money and I think you'll be just fine. You don't have to be an attorney to be my assistant. So I acted as a client and the assistant during the trial. And it was very shocking that the judge awarded me half of everything that was acquired during the marriage because in truth, when the law was written, that was her maximum expectation of what would ever happen. So she hit it out of the park. Yes. On her first she was trial. very happy. And we worked very well together. And That's she was great. really smart. And you weren't convinced to go to law school after that? 
No, because by then I had really, I really found that advertising was right for me. It was right for me because it was creative and intellectual. And I was really kind of worried to miss the creative side to leave pottery. And I, I really, I just loved advertising for the 30 years for more than 30 years that I worked in advertising, 30 years I had Sequest, I just, I really did. I really enjoyed the work. It was very rewarding. So how old are you at the time that you took this course at Goucher? Are you in your late 30s 36, or 40s? Like 36, in my 30s. Okay. So you're a single mom. Were you living with your parents? Did you move back yeah. with your parents? Oh, no, 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 okay. no, 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 I'm a strong personality. My mother's a strong personality. We got along very well. We would not do well sharing the same house. Okay. So you're, um, you have middle-aged uh, daughters right? and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life and you think it's advertising. What prompts you to start your own advertising firm? I thought I was too old to move up the chain. As you just made that honestly, as, like, honestly, I just said to myself, look, I'm starting at the bottom. Other people start at the bottom in their twenties. And I, at that point, being in your thirties, your middle, late thirties, your late thirties, by then I'm in my late thirties, you're old. I mean, I thought, I felt like I was old. And so I decided that the only way that I would really be able to do what I wanted was to try to do it myself. Did you have any fear? You seem to never have any fear, Anita. You I just had lots go of fear. determined. You did I, have fear. I had lots of fear. I mean, and I had, I'll be honest, I, I mean, at that point I had met a man and we became partners and he also was in the advertising room and we were going to do this together. But aside from that, and my parents who were always supportive, everyone else was not supportive. People said, get a real job, get a job. What are you doing? This is, you're, you're too old to start a business. Did you have any friends where you were living in the suburbs, female friends who were working full-time? Or were you one of the few Where people? I lived, not a single person worked full-time. Were one they even divorced? Was, was going back to teaching. But other than that, it, it, it was a very typical affluent suburban community. So not only are you probably one of the only divorced women there. I was the only divorced woman in my particular community. And you needed to work full time. And then not only that, you decide to start a business. When you started your business, did you have like a minimum income that you were trying to make each year? Like, were you like, if I could make 10 grand a year, I, I don't know what the like average salary or a salary that you had in mind, but was there like... I hope I can make this much each year and I'll consider it a success. No, I really didn't. I really just said, I hope I can pay my bills and I'll consider it a success. And to supplement my income, I went back to my old friend, the marketing research guy, and I said to him, can I, because then you, when you did marketing research, everything was on a tape and you would have to listen to the tape and draw conclusions from it. And I said, like to him, a cassette tape or like big wheels? No, I no, no. It was, it was a, a small tape. Um, what, okay. I can't even think of what they're called. Uh, like a, like a, a reporter? It was on a cassette. Okay. In other words, so you, there wasn't, they didn't do video. They only did audio on a cassette. And I said to him, can I, and I had, one of the things I had done when I had worked for him was to analyze 
the tapes from um, sessions. So I said, could I work for you at night? And so not to take away from building the business, one night a week I wouldn't sleep. <laughs> and I stayed up all night and listened to the tapes and wrote analysis. So While that, you had two children. I had to, that's how I supplemented my income. And then you had a, essentially a third with, with your partner's daughter as well, right? Right, right. So I uh, just, Thursday night was my night because I figured I could make it till the weekend. And then it, I worked on the weekends, but not as much. What year is this? Is this in the uh, 80s? So this is in the 80s. Okay. Now, did you have a computer at the house? Like, did you even, okay. did you get an office? Okay. Paint the picture for us. Paint the picture for you. Okay. The, the house was a multi-level house and a half a story down had been my pottery studio. We took the pottery studio and we converted it into an office. Did you cry when you did that? Or were you excited? No, I threw my last pot before that and walked out and I said I was done. And then I came down couple months later and gave all my equipment away. Okay. Um, no, I was done. And so we, we turned it into an office and initially we had a typewriter and a file cabinet. And then, um, was it an electronic typewriter. It was an electric typewriter, Ooh, a brother so had, electric like, typewriter. Oh yeah. My sister's had that like the modern the modern yes. word processor yes. typewriter? No, no, it was just a plain old electric typewriter. Okay. And then okay. um, we bought an IBM PC. How much did it cost? Do you remember? $5,000. Yeah, huge amount of money. 1996. Huh? Can you believe yeah. that? And, um, it, and a dot matrix printer. But you couldn't send out a letter or a proposal on a dot matrix printer. It didn't look professional. So we jury rigged it to the typewriter because <laughs> we couldn't afford a regular printer because a regular printer then was very expensive. Sure. And the typewriter would go, we would type, it would go all night long to type the stuff with the keys going, <laughs> going back and forth, phantom keys all night. That's so funny. It was pretty funny. So how long before you got your first client? And how did you even get your first clients? Like, what, what was that? Well, it was very interesting because when we decided to start the agency, we decided to break some of the norms of advertising agencies. First of all, in those days, every advertising agency had a name, usually the principal's name, but maybe it was a mother-in-law's name or a grandmother's name. And that was like a, a law firm, consider that. And I... And I remember I said, I don't want to do that. I want to be different. I want to be more creative than that. I want to come up with a name that's unique, that causes people to ask, talk about and ask questions about. Did that. And then the next thing. Wait a minute. Pause. Tell us about the name. The name and how, is and what is it? And what does it mean? And what was the, what was the idea behind it? It means if one, it's Latin, if one wishes. And it's a term under which people would, Post advertising in the Middle Ages. Oh, interesting. So it, it had relevance. It was unusual. It was unique. And so, and it felt right. Then the second thing was that at that time, advertising and design, and this probably doesn't mean anything to people who aren't in the field, but advertising and design were considered separate disciplines. It seemed to me that it didn't make sense. And everyone said we would fail if we brought them together. They couldn't work together but we decided we were going to do both. And then I think really what, what helped us to launch the company is we met these photographers 
And they were in Washington, D.C. She had been an Eileen Ford model, cover girl, Vogue cover girl, who now moved to the other side of the camera. And they were very interested and they were very talented. They were, I mean, she had a great eye. He was very technical. They were, they were really good. And so we had this idea to team up with them and to try, which is very unusual outside of New York, to go after fashion clients. And we set out to research and visit clients. And we were able to work with a couple local stores at the time, a store named Octavia, a store named Jones and Jones, um, a store named Trillium. And that was, they were just little clients. They weren't sustainable. But then I think we were just at the right time at the right place. We met with a company named Teltex. It was a Fortune 500 company on what was then the American Stock Exchange. And they had just literally decided that they were, they had always done everything in-house, that they were looking for an outside agency. And we hit it off with them and they gave us a chance. They didn't know we were working in our basement with the typewriter that was a fan to me. So, and they, and you know, and that was, they were our first real client and they were a real client. Did you have, was it always, you had the final word? That's really very hard to say because it was supposed to be in terms of decision-making equal, but I was the more active partner. I was the partner who was more engaged and more involved. So I ended up having more say. And probably the more visionary one as well. And the harder working one. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about some of your clients. You had some big name clients. There was Woolrich, which we're going to come back to, Vineyard Vines. Vineyard Vines for a little while. But our early clients, in the early days, we worked primarily with fashion clients. We worked with this company, Teltex, which was very large. They had numerous divisions. We worked with Woolrich. We worked with Kohan. We worked with After Six. We worked with Strayer University. We worked with Spirit Airlines. Then we developed... Do you work with Kenneth Cole? I wore a lot of Kenneth Cole. No. No, no, you can't. <laughs> one thing, uh, one thing, and we worked for some major department stores too. We worked for Ivy's and Belk. Ivy's is now Dillard's. These are large department stores in the Carolinas. We worked with Little Me, who was one of our major clients. We we worked with a client which you haven't heard of, which we had some. We liked esoteric clients, an Argentinian bathing suit company, and I guess our claim to fame there was we shot a catalog with Carmen Diaz when she was a model oh, wow. and not an actress before she became a famous actress. Oh, wow. Now she's retired. Yes. Yes. I read that, that she has retired. But um, And we worked with a lot of, when we did fashion, we worked with a, with some amazing photographers. And and you did a lot of fashion shoots, right? Like yes. you did a lot of the uh, the pictures. Yes. And hiring yeah. the models. So tell us you did some of them on location and quite, you traveled quite a bit for we, these. We did. We traveled all over. We shot all over the United States. Um, we shot in England. We shot in Brazil. We shot in the islands. We shot on cruise ships. I always say my claim to fame was I fired Albert Watson. <laughs> tell us who Albert Watson is. For oh, Albert Watson is a famous photographer who, as he said, you can't fire me. I was, I was asked to shoot the queen. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you fire him? Well, Kohan had wanted us to work with him. 
we went to New York to meet with him and our creative director, who was extremely talented, was this very kind of tiny, unassuming woman. And he was just rude to her. And so I called the client and I said, I have to tell you, I don't think this is going to be successful. I don't think we can work with him. I would think it would be best to pay him for his time and look for another photographer. And the client loved this creative director. And I said, and he, he almost brought Rosemary to tears. So she said, call him and tell him he's off the job. So I did. Tell us a story about when you went to Brazil. Oh, well, that was really interesting. We were shooting for Ivy's, which is a department store in the Carolinas. Shooting internationally is very challenging. We, we enjoyed doing it, but you have to, the paperwork is very extensive because country doesn't want you to bring all this equipment and all this clothing into the country and then sell it there. And you have to do what's called a carne. We did all the proper paperwork. We had all the approvals. We arrived on a Sunday and at customs, they said to us, oh, it's Sunday. We can't process it. Come back tomorrow. And we always allowed travel day and time. So it was fine. So we felt like we had to get, we felt maybe there was something not quite right. So we should get a customs broker. So we hired this customs broker and we really didn't know that much about him. And the next day we went to pick up our equipment and they spoke and spoke and spoke. And then after much conversation, he said to us, oh, it's going to take a couple of days. Long story short, what they were waiting for was a bribe. Was this shocking to you? It was shocking. It was. I have to say it was shocking. It was shocking the number of people involved in this bribe, including people from Pan Am Airlines in Rio. Mm -hmm. So we, and we were doing this as a promotion with Pan Am. And what that (laughs) means is we would promote Pan Am and the advertising and the catalog. And in return, they gave us free airfare for like 15 people. So there was a lot of contention there. Anyway, long story short, because all my stories are long, (laughs) it became clear they eventually told, we eventually then hired a translator because we didn't trust the customs broker. The translator told us that what we have to do is we have to pay a bribe. Now, at this time in Brazil, Rio was very lawless. I think this was like maybe like 87, 87, 88. And so to do this, And we had already been changing money on the black market because the black market in Rio was very open and it was through the jewelry stores. The better the jewelry store, the lower the exchange rate. The the more sort of seedy the jewelry store, the the better the exchange rate. So we talked to our jewelry store where we had been changing money, which was H. Stern, and they, which is an international jewelry store, and they hooked us up with a lesser jewelry store who would give us a better exchange rate. And I went there with the client and one other person from the agency. And when we got there, it was this very unassuming jewelry store. And they, we told them who we were and they opened this door and behind that were just people and money everywhere. And these other people left fled. They left me (laughs) because they figured it wasn't safe. And they were probably a lot smarter than I was. Were you scared? You know, I was so frustrated by the whole situation. I think I had... No, I wasn't scared because we had guaranteed the client that this would work. We could go to Brazil. It was the winter. We were shooting bathing suits. It would be lovely. It would be beautiful. It would be exotic. And here, everything was, you know, sort of falling apart. And I was focusing on trying to get it back together. And we got our money. Then we had to go through the bureaucracy. 
and we had to go and we had to sit in the bureaucrat's office and have to charm his secretary so she would put our papers on the top. And then we eventually able to do our photo shoot. And it did turn out great in the end. <laughs> How many days uh, delayed were you? We were like three days delayed. Okay. We had to make up the time. We made up the time too. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Because that's a lot of cost. Three days delay with all that, peop- all oh, that yeah. people. Oh, yeah. You have to pay everyone. Yeah. So, so the we- models are out partying? Oh, no. No, 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 no. They, <laughs> no, they, were, they weren't partying at this point because they were, they were under control. Because okay. if they got messed up, if they got messed, if, you know, and also too, when you're shooting bathing suits, you have to be very careful that people don't sit in the sun in different bathing suits because then they, oh. these were the days before Photoshop and it was very expensive to take out tan lines and things like that. So the models had to be very controlled. So they had pretty strict contracts then? Yes. Yes. And everyone knew when you shot bathing suits, what you had to do and how you had to do that. And Everyone, you know, they were, they were fine. There was, there's always a lot of partying on photo shoots. So maybe it was enough partying. Now, did you have guilt being a working mom at this time? And, you know, your original plan had been to be a stay at home mom. And here you are not only just working full time, uh, but traveling all over. Yes, I definitely did. How Um, did you deal with that? You had like nobody to talk to about it. No, not really. I would talk to my mother and my father, and they were very supportive, and they really very much stepped in. One of the things about it that was that was fun, which um, is that it was always very hard to find child models. And my younger daughter, who from the time she was about 10 to 15, was a model, and she would be on a lot of the photo shoots, so that was that was fun for her. And sometimes my older daughter would come along to kind of keep her company. So that was nice. And sometimes I took them with me. You mean it was nice when Annie Leibovitz shot your daughter? No, Annie Leibovitz <laughs> shot my grandson, which had nothing oh to do with God. me. No, that was... Oh, I thought that was related no, to No, it had you. nothing to do with me. Kelly walked outside one day and her neighbor said to her, oh, Tyler's gorgeous. And her neighbor was a, a photo editor of Vanity Fair. And she said, Annie Leibovitz is doing a photo shoot and she wants a child. Would you be interested? Kelly said, I don't know. She called me. She said, who's this Annie Leibovitz? And I said, oh, she's just probably the most famous, one of the most famous living photographers. Well, speaking of children, my daughter wants to say hello. She knows uh, Anita quite well, and she's sitting next to me. Say hello. Hi. Hi, Rose. How are you? (laughs) Are you having fun? Yeah. Good. All right. Well, uh, Rose, I appreciate you sitting here, but you got to be quiet so that we can continue the interview. Okay. All right. Yeah. You can say goodbye to Anita. Goodbye. Anita. Goodbye. I hope I see you soon. <laughs> Thanks for being good, Rose. Tell me, um, we talked a little bit, how much money did you need to start your business? Like where did you even get the finances to buy the computer and what were some of the money related uh, issues that you had? Okay. We essentially started the business with no money. I mean, and we bought each thing as we could afford it. We did take out a small loan to buy the $5,000 computer. A business loan or like a loan against your house? Did you take out? That was a personal loan. And we paid it back. It was a very fast loan. And then when we decided to move out of the basement, we needed a real loan. And then we, uh, my father-in-law, with whom I remained very close, 
had a long-term relationship with Mercantile and he did introduce us to people at Mercantile. And I think that really gave them the security, even though the loan was completely secured to give us our first loan, which was, um, wasn't a line of credit, didn't want a line of credit, wanted an actual loan that we could pay back, but I had to secure it with the equity in my house. Okay. So you put your house on the line for it. put my house on the line for it. At what point did you have a 401k, Anita? We started our 401k um, when we were in our first office. So sometime between 1987 and 1992, probably sometime around 1990. And what was your 401k match? Did you do a 401k match? Um, We did a 401k match and it varied over the years. Okay. So let's... um, And tell me the story about uh, going up to win over Woolrich when you you had to win over. Now, I want to talk about... So you worked for a lot of fashion and then your business grew up in the 80s and 90s and you had some strong opinions about how your company should be run. So tell us a little bit about the rules that you had well, as my, a business owner. My rules actually started from when we worked in the basement because I felt, <laughs> I'm serious, I felt like if we didn't get dressed up every day, we wouldn't feel we were at work. So, Do you the, think you could hire people today to do that? <laughs> like, can you no, imagine? <laughs> no. I mean, it's such a different culture today, right? I wore I heels. Mean, my partner wore coat and tie every day. So when we started... In your basement. In the basement every day. Couldn't come to work unless you were properly dressed. So, of course, my rules. So then when we went to the office, and this was not unique for that time, everyone had to wear coat and tie, men. Women had to be, they could wear pants. I never wore pants until well into the 90s to work. I only wore a skirt because I didn't think it was proper. Did you always wear heels too? I always wear heels. I always was... Kitten heels or like real heels? Oh, I was never, I can never walk in real heels. Right. Okay. That, that, you know, but I wore, you know, low, rel, mid, mid, I called them mid heels. And pantyhose, right? And pantyhose. pantyhose. No, no bare legs. No bare legs. Oh my God. When did you finally drop the pantyhose? Um, when I retired. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't you have a pantyhose requirement for the women too? Well, I didn't know, just no bare legs. Did you have a no tattoos or like crazy hair no, policy? No, no, didn't know. They were they're creative people. Their their hair okay. was going to be weird. A lot of them. Okay. But okay. as time evolved, you know, we loosened up, and then one person who I thought was a wonderful employee said, if she couldn't wear jeans, she couldn't stay at the company because everyone wore jeans, and they made fun of her that she could never wear jeans to work. So I was so- like, this is insane. I probably need to rethink and. Then I used to put a sign up in my, I put a sign up in my office. Anything but a bathing suit is okay. <laughs> but one of our clients, but you never dress casually, though. Like no, you never, I never dressed casually. I now, never, how, do you, how do you feel about seeing people's toes at work? I was okay with toes after a while you in were. the summer. Yeah, as long as the shoes were right. You yeah. know, not flip flops, but nice. I have like a thing against toes overall, so I don't like, I don't like seeing people's I say, toes. I think that's the old lady part of right. me. I was like, you can only see the tips of two toes, I think, but everybody loves wearing flip-flops in the office. But at this time when people were transitioning and we were still um, fixed in the proper dress, one of our clients called me and says, I'm going to give you a good laugh. I came back to the office and coming back to the office from our place meant flying. 
and, you know, you flew everywhere. He said, and they looked at me and they said, were you at Sequest or a funeral? You're all dressed up. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, one of your clients was the brand STX. Can you explain uh, who they are? Yes, STX actually invented the modern day lacrosse stick. They were the first people to do a non-wooden lacrosse stick. And And where did they go to college? They all went to Johns Hopkins. There were three of them. They were engineers. They loved to play lacrosse. And they wanted to be able to be engaged in the sport after graduation. And so they did, They the first heads were plastic. And so they came up with this plastic head. And they have tons and tons of patents. And they were great fun to work with. And this was, they were a great way of combining we worked for them, I think, for about 15 years. And they were a great way of combining advertising and design. And they let us do things like like design the graphics on their sticks. We really did a lot of fun things with them. And another fun client you had was Spirit Airlines? Yes, Spirit Airlines. Um, the slogan was party in the uh, business in the, the front, party, party in the, the back. back. <laughs> the guy with the mullet. <laughs> what were some of the other cheeky lines? I remember when I met you, it was really cheeky. It was something uh, yes. about like um, flying naked or no, no. Well, we did have a flying naked one, but um, <laughs> I'm not sure this is for the podcast, but it made it on national TV. Mm-hmm. It was the MILF ad. The what? MILF. Oh, a MILF. MILF. <laughs> Many islands, low fares, but it has another <laughs> meaning. Yeah, yeah. And I'm aware. I mean, and this, it was like on several TV shows. Is that, is this appropriate? I mean, there's, there are two wars going on and they're wondering if this ad is appropriate. <laughs> Too funny. Yes. And it, and it did well, huh? It did well. Well, the point was that they were breaking boundaries. They were breaking barriers and they wanted the, the ads to be irreverent. You know, that was a lot of fun. The creative people loved it because you don't usually get to do crazy stuff like that. And to be honest, a lot of times we knew the ads would get pulled because somebody's attorney would, but that was okay too. They were fine with that. They were fine with that. Now, were you the creative force behind many of these ideas and campaigns? I was a marketing person. Yeah. Um, And I might be part of the team, but it's really the creative people who, the copywriter and the art director who bring the strategy and the marketing to life in the ad. That's what I loved about advertising. I mean, and not to be immodest, but I think we did really good work and that would always give me a, a great feeling. And it was, it was always very exciting for me to like have a strategy document and a marketing document and see what, how the creative people could make that into an ad. Have you watched uh, Mad Men? Believe it or not, no. You've never watched <laughs> I it. I watched it. I watched it, but I didn't become involved in love with it. It was way Why? Be- well, it was way before Sequis. I mean Was it too sexist for you too? Like was that hard was, to stomach? It was sort of some of the things were like Sequis, but in general it was nothing like my ad experience. My okay. I know when I worked at another agency there was more of that there. But you know, I worked Sequis. I mean, at one point we were, we had very few men who worked for us. We were much more female dominated company through most of the history of the company. And in fact, I remember being in a client meeting and the client was a woman and she said, gee, you're really a male dominated agency. And I said, really? I said, we're 25 people 
And the three men who worked there were with me. <laughs> so there were four of us, three of them were men. <laughs> um, and did they have ever have any issues? Like, did you ever have any men interview and be like, whoa, this is too much estrogen? No. I, and, you know, people say, did you ever feel discriminated against because you were a woman? And I have to say, in any real sense, I never did. The only time it came close to that was I went with a, a colleague to a meeting and you had to go through a gate, security gate at the clients. And he was driving and the guard said, is she going in with you? And he turned to him and he said, she is my boss. <laughs> <laughs> so you never felt like your, your clients were sexist where you had to put a man in front to, no, to win? I really didn't. I really, an account. I really didn't. But advertising had changed from the days I told the CEO at this other agency because by the time we started Sequest, I'd say women were in equal positions of power with men. Where? In, aver <laughs> in, in advertising. In advertising. Okay. In advertising. I feel like that, you know, it was ne not necessarily dominated by men. What was your very favorite part kind of about it? Like when you oh. look back on it, what was your favorite part? My, oh, it's easy to know that. My favorite part was, well, looking at good work when the creative people sent good work. That was always made me happy, extremely happy. But it was seeing my work out, the work out, our work out in the world. We did several, one for Spirit actually, and one for um, Teltex, three-story high billboards in Times Square. And going wow. to see those was exciting. And then going into a Kohan store was always, because Kohan was such a recognized brand and so high end. And when we would go in there and we would see everything we did down to making, doing the design on the shoe boxes and they would have our catalogs and our ads in the store. And, you know, I would walk in and I would, in some ways I'd pinch myself and I'd say, do we really do this? I think the greatest sort of kudo we ever got was we did, we had a baby client, um, little me who also eventually bought the Ralph Lauren. Well, they were a they did the Ralph Lauren brand for children, but um, we did an all over wrapped bus in New York. We were one of the first people to do it, but we were the first person to do it, to put something on the top. And what we put on the top was a baby. And the only way you could see the top was if you were looking out your window and not working, it said, Hey, you get back to work. <laughs> and CNN went crazy. They so someone from CNN saw it and they did an entire segment on it, including in interviewing the bus driver and people on the bus. And we were described as crafty advertising executives. And when and they ran it over and over, they even ran it in, in foreign markets. In fact, our client was trying to get distribution in South America, and the person saw this and said. Well, if you can get this, then you can have my business. <laughs> you That's know, that was probably, that was like, I mean, the whole agency went crazy when, you know, CNN did this whole, Jeannie Most did this whole subject, whole segment on it. I can't even imagine. Now, did you ever armchair quarterback and, and look back and think, oh, I really wish I had done this differently? And, and what do you, what oh. would you change if you could have? Oh, well, I'm very good at armchair quarterback. <laughs> What would I change? Well, first of all, I would have learned how to delegate sooner than I learned how to delegate. I would have had a 
<laughs> an easier, happier life in an early <laughs> stage. I thought I had to do everything myself. And that that's that's very difficult. So I, I think that's very common for most entrepreneurs, though. It is really hard. Very hard for me. It was very hard for me to let go. And um, I probably would have taken more chances. I was pretty conservative. It doesn't sound like I am, but I no, was... No, I'm shocked by that. No, actually. I would have taken some bigger chances, I think. Like what? Well, I was always very financially conservative. Um, I Once we were a successful running business, I wasn't willing to go into debt to expand. I wanted to expand naturally. Maybe that was wrong. I don't know. might have been right. I liked the company. I know this sounds weird. I liked the company more when we were smaller than when we were bigger. Because how big did you get? Like, what was your revenue and your or your people count? What was the bigger count for you? Well, fifty five. It's complicated to give you the revenue count because people give it in different ways. When I say different ways, if I I give it with media, meaning media, eighty five percent of it passes through. So it just it just varies. Okay. Okay. What did your definition of success change over time? Like, have you, did you have a very clear idea of what success looked like for you then? You know, if originally it was to be a stay at home mom. Right. Well, so when we started Sequest, mm-hmm. success looked like a successful business that would provide an adequate income. But success has always been the same thing for me once I decided I want it was the same thing from the beginning but my definition of what that would be changed my my definition of success isn't like making the most amount of money my definition is are you happy do you like what you're doing every day and when I can say I did that then I feel successful and what I do I like in other words I feel good about what I do Mm -hmm. and you I always thought I would be a social scientist and save the world like and, Margaret Mead? Well, no, I would be a psychologist or a sociologist and I would, you know, work for, and that would be very rewarding. And then when I went in another direction, I thought, well, this is going to be rewarding for me. Making pots was rewarding because there was something really beautiful at the end and you created it out of your sort of your heart. And then when I went into advertising, though, I found that it was really rewarding because I, I liked what we did. I thought it, it was, clever and smart and it did its job and it, it, you know, somebody hired us to do something. We did it well and I was proud of it. Now I'm a big reader. So tell me what one of your favorite books is. Like what book would you recommend? That that you're going to laugh. My favorite book of all times and has been forever is Candide's Voltaire. Voltaire's Candide. Sorry, I got them backwards. Candide. That is my favorite. I've never read anything that I like more. I probably read it four times. Did you read it in French, Anita? No, I read it in English. <laughs> uh, languages are not my thing. Um, why? Why is this your favorite book? Well, it's a satire. I don't like comedy, but I do like really smart satire. And it, it it's able to weave fiction at, in with real events. These What happens in the book didn't actually happen, but a lot of events did. And even though it's, I've read it in, translated into English, I still think it's beautifully written. And it, I never, I've never read it that it doesn't give me like a sense of awe, you know, like this is the best of all possible worlds. The worst thing in the world is happening and it's the best of all possible worlds. I just, I just think it's a, a wonderful book. 
Did you ever get any advice that really changed your life or changed the direction that you took? I will say, I kept hearing the, this psychology professor saying to me, what are you going to do? What, what is your career going to be? That definitely did. Interestingly enough, when you talk about favorite books, I think a book written by another person who had an advertising agency in Richmond, a man named David Martin, he wrote a book called Romancing the Brand. And I think that changed my life because it told me, it helped me to define what good advertising was. I, I think I had an innate sense because I'm a creative person and I have a sense of aesthetics, but it helped me to combine that with the strategic thinking that the advertising needs to have behind it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was a book I loved so much that I, when I got a new client, I would buy the book for them. And I always had a stack on my desk to give out to employees. Oh, that's nice. I've never, you know, we've spent a lot of time together and I've never heard either of those books. So oh, okay. To... No. Well, you've never asked. <laughs> well, I've heard of, I've heard of uh, Voltaire, but I've never read it. And um, I'll have oh, to, you have to read it. You'll, you'll love it. It's, it's I mean, I'm look. I'm typically looking at your cookbooks. Oh well, I love those, which you too. have many of, right? And <laughs> you know, if you would ask me other books I like, I like which my tastes go all over. I love Ruth Reichel's Tender at the Bone. I thought that right. was a, that one. I knew that was a, <laughs> and I just read A Gentleman in Moscow that I enjoyed a lot. I think that's Amir Tolls. What advice do you have for young women today? I would say, when you think of a career. A career should be something you enjoy going to every day. You will spend more time in your job than you spend doing anything else if you actually count the hours and you work till a certain age. So if you don't enjoy going there every day, don't, that's not your career. Mm-hmm. And there are many careers we can enjoy. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. And I think you learn from everything. Everything I have done, every career I've had, I bring something to the next career. And if you don't like what you're doing, change your career. Well, so one thing I think that's interesting is my parents never changed their career. My one sister has changed her career quite a bit, but my my other sister and I, we really held a pretty steady path. And your daughters haven't changed careers that oh, yes, much they either. Have. Oh, they have? They have. Oh, my gosh, yes. Kelly, well, Kelly started as a pre-men wager who went to be as an English major and a poet. And then she went to graduate school and got her PhD in English, except she decided not to write her dissertation. And then she said she really loved computers. So she started working for Rutgers where she was getting her PhD on a grant from the National Science Foundation. This is way back when, bringing computers to schools, the computer technology, finding soft money so schools in New Jersey could get computers. And Jamie, oh my God, you, you don't, okay, Jamie has a degree in metal smithing with a minor in French <laughs> and nutrition. I forgot about that because I think my parents would have been horrified if I got a metal smithing degree. Well, and then she worked, um, she had, after she graduated college, she got a grant and went to the Netherlands to study metal smithing for a year. Then she went to work in San Francisco for a jeweler who did Florentine gold fusion. Then she went to work for Back Roads, and she was a... Well, that's a great company. Yeah. I got I, I to give her major props for that and one. She worked there for a long time. She was, in fact, their Italian head, where she developed and headed tours in Italy. Then she went to work in their marketing department. Then she left and went to work for Ask Jeeves, 
Then she left A.S. Jeeves and went to work for Marin Bikes. And then she went into public relations. <laughs> so you don't think she's changed careers a few times? Well, maybe only from the time I've known her. It's been relatively steady. But she's been in PR since you've known her. But she's now jumped from the agency side to the client side. So that's a big change too. Is there anything I uh, should ask you that I didn't ask already? I can't think. You've asked me so many things. I don't think so. Um, do you have any other advice for young women besides uh, enjoy your career? Enjoy your career. I think pick, a, pick. Just, you know, you might not hit it right the first time, but if you're not happy, don't stay in that career. You're, you're not, you don't have to do that for your rest of your life. And if you're not happy in a job, don't stay in a job. It used to be, you know, your parents, but my parents thought if you had a job, that's the job you had for the rest of your life. I don't think that's true anymore. And finally, tell us um, something about you that might surprise uh, <laughs> might surprise us. All right. Well, before I... Oh, had, God, I feel like you've been thinking about this one. No, no. I'm just going to laugh because when you hear what it is. I, before I had GBS, I would say my age and my energy would always surprise people. What is GBS? Tell us a little. Guillain-Barre syndrome. Guillain-Barre syndrome is a disease that where your body attacks itself and the myelin sheath on your nerves is removed, which basically function, makes your nerves not work, which in turn makes your muscles not work. And I was fully paralyzed from the neck down and on a ventilator. From a flu shot? From a flu shot. I got it from a flu shot. You can get it from any, a number of things. It's very rare. I got it from a flu shot. So, and I guess maybe from that, which I've always learned is, you know, if you want something, you have to fight for it. And I wanted to walk and be able to live a normal life. And I had to fight hard to do that. I had to, I did, you know, extensive, extensive physical therapy for a very long time. And, but anyway, so before that, I, I, so I don't have that energy and, you know, you'll laugh at this one. Um, I looked at your father one day and I said, this disease has aged me 10 years. And he said, not 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear him saying it? <laughs> Did he give like a precise number? No, but obviously it had aged me in his eyes. But and the last thing, which has always been something I've done, I have the mouth of a sailor, and people are always shocked when the comes out of my mouth. And I, I really don't hold back. Clients at work. In fact, once when Jamie was in kindergarten. She was using curse words, and the teacher said, you can't speak like that. She said, but my mommy does. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've ever noticed that about you. You haven't. Um, oh. It's probably because I uh, am similar. <laughs> uh, my son has been asking me to refrain on the F-bombs. And- yes, my grandchildren now. My children used to ask me, and now my grandchildren are. They say, Alma, you can't talk like that. <laughs> And anything else? Any any final words? No, this has been fun. I don't think so. I think you've done a great job. Well, I, I just really wanted to thank you um, so much. Anita has been there for advice as I've grown um, my business, both as being a working mom and kind of the struggles with business and finance and and how to market it. And um, I've really valued your straight talk. <laughs> <laughs> when I would I say to you, it's not that hard. You, you could, people have it a lot harder than you. <laughs> Just get out there and do it. 
<laughs> I remember, yeah, you were like, well, there was a time I didn't sleep and I had to take out a much harder loan, right? right like and I my- had to stay up 24 hours. I had to buy things. You don't have to buy anything. That's true. <laughs> it's true. It's a different world. It's so much less money um, yeah. and risk to get started. Right. And yeah, and and worst case scenario, I was like, well, I can always go back to uh, being an employee. But right. uh, well, remember, I, think- I said that to you. I said, what's your what's the worst thing that can happen? You said, well, I have to go back to being an employee. I said, so what have you lost if you have to do that? <laughs> You've not lost anything. You have somewhere to go if it doesn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I really have appreciated it. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I needed... When you start a business, you don't need anyone's blessing to start it. Absolutely not. Right. Um, And you're not going to necessarily get it. But it was nice for me, especially because I was like looking at, you know, it was something I had wanted forever. And my dad is not very uh, risky, you know, very conservative. And I think it was nice for the two of you to both say, you know, it's worth it. You should do it. And especially in the beginning when I wanted to quit and run back, you were like, well, you know, there's risk both ways. You know, life is risk and you really don't know how it's going to turn out. So bet on yourself. Right. I remember you said to me though early on, you said, I want to live abroad, work, live and work abroad. I want to have children and I want to start a business. I said, pick two. (laughs) <laughs> well, I did. I did. You yeah. know, I um, yeah. we got that offer. I know. Uh, and I decided that living abroad wasn't what was going to make me happy. Yeah, you and, made the choice. You could, you couldn't do all three. That's you can't. Yeah, you couldn't. Yeah, they had to pick two. Yeah, I think I really, you know, I liked working and I liked the challenge, um, and I felt like living abroad was going to put me sideways. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, I decided to double down on the kids, and you're ready to be a. A grandma again? Yes, number seven with uh, with a dog. <laughs> oh, you know the with drama of the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so our puppy's on its way, Anita. Oh, are you excited? Uh, oh, so excited! But you know, my dad loves dogs too. I so know he does. I know he get loves ready. dogs. It's I know he loves cutest. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate hearing your stories, and I can't wait to share it with everybody. So, thank you again. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.